Thank you, Tom. Worship team for leading us this morning to celebrate Christ, which is what we are here for, is Jesus. If you would, 2 Corinthians, not 2 Peter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Due to all of the upheaval behind us and the uncertainty before us, it's really the perfect time to re-evaluate ourselves as a church, uh, to reevaluate ourselves as a church and ask what, based on the Bible, that's the key phrase here, what, based on the Bible, must we as a church be like and look like? We don't need to look back, we need to look to the Bible. What, according to the Bible, should remain the same at First Baptist Church and what must change? Over the next two weeks, we're going to seek to answer those questions and we're going to seek to learn how we can become more of a New Testament church than maybe we have been in the past and maybe we are today. Uh, This week, we're going to lay the foundation and next week, we're going to erect the structure, so to speak. And I want you to hear me very carefully. The structure that we're going to erect next week will not stand without a firm foundation. So we need to pay close attention today, very close attention today to what we're going to see in Scripture as we think about this foundation that we're going to lay for the future of First Baptist. And the foundation that I'm referring to is really a simple phrase, but it's not a simple sermon, so you've got to stay with me, Okay. The simple foundation that we have to lay this morning as a church, if we are to survive the future that lays before us, is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. You may have never heard that phrase before. But I want you to hear that if we don't have that foundation, the sufficiency of Scripture... Whatever structure we erect that looks like a New Testament church is not going to stand. Now, we had a big fist fight back in the 1980s and 1990s, and this, not a real fist fight, in the Southern Baptist Convention. But we had a fight back in the 1980s and the 1990s in the Southern Baptist Convention over the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And, and this church found itself in a very unique place during that time. You have a story there that is uh, very, very intriguing, very interesting, that you were caught up in the middle of that battle for the Bible in the 80s and the 90s. And you survived that battle and came out on the other end of that better uh, because of that battle. And some of you may be going, inerrancy, infallibility, we come inside 30 minutes and you're using big words. Okay, well, let me define them. Inerrancy, inerrancy means the Bible is without error. Now, there were people, and there still are, but there were people in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s and 90s who were in leadership who did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They did not believe that the Bible is without error. The infallibility of Scripture means that the Bible can never be wrong. And we believe those two things here this morning. Or honestly, I wouldn't be here. I'd be kicked back in a recliner trying to find a football game to watch right now. Or something. I would be doing something. If the Bible's not true, and if the Bible's not trustworthy, I don't have a reason to be here. And you don't either, honestly. So it's a battle worth fighting, and it was a battle worth winning. And the problem is, they stopped short in the battle. 
They fought for the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, which is a wonderful thing, but they should have thrown one more punch and went for the sufficiency of Scripture as well. You see, without the sufficiency of Scripture, those other things, inerrancy and infallibility, really don't have any teeth. They're all bark and no bite. Inerrancy and infallibility have to do with what we believe, what we say we believe. But sufficiency has something to do with the application of what we believe. Do you see that difference? So we can talk about inerrancy, we can talk about infallibility, we can go to the conferences, we can go to the conventions, we can use the buzzwords, we can use the fancy phrases, get some hoops and hollers and amens from all the preachers in the crowd and never touch sufficiency because honestly, inerrancy and infallibility only only deal with our minds. Sufficiency deals with what we do with what's in our minds. Are you following me? I hope you're following me. The foundation we're trying to lay this morning is this. Scripture is absolutely sufficient for our theology. What we believe is totally summed up in Scripture. And it's not only sufficient for our theology, what we believe, but it is also sufficient for all of our methodology. And that's what we do as a church. So are you with me? This is the foundation. Not only do we need to believe that Scripture is without error and that Scripture is always true and trustworthy, but we need to say what we believe is rooted and grounded and found in Scripture. And what we do from the time we gather in this place, and those doors are open, and the time that those doors close and we leave, what we do together as a church is found in Scripture. Now, the grand enemy, I'm going to meddle here this morning, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm just trying to give you context of who I am and where we need to be as we look to the future. But the grand enemy of the sufficiency of Scripture is a word called pragmatism. Now, what is pragmatism? I've used more big words this morning than I have in three years, haven't I? I'm sorry. Pragmatism, according to John MacArthur, is the notion that worth is determined by results. To a pragmatist, if a technique or course of action has the desired effect, it is good. If it doesn't seem to work, it must be wrong. In other words, pragmatism simply says the end justifies the means. And as Southern Baptists, we, are, we ought to have a big plaque above all of our door. Pragmatist Baptist Church. Because if what we're doing doesn't work, let me define that word for you. If what we're doing doesn't work, produce baptisms, bodies in the benches, and bigger budgets, then it must be wrong. And we need to reevaluate. And on the flip side, if what we're doing does work, produce baptisms, whether they're saved or not. Let's get them wet and put a number down where we look good on the, at the end of the year, right? Pray that prayer, slap that hand, get them wet, put them down on paper. We're on the front page of the Baptist Reflector. If what we're doing works to produce those baptisms and to produce those bodies on the benches and the bigger budgets, then it must be right. And it's obviously, obviously pleasing to God. He's blessing it. So we bring in a circus with a, with a 
Zebra. And it draws a crowd, and we talk some people into getting baptized. But God loves the circus, clearly. Let's build a Ringling Brothers out here in the field. And that sounds ridiculous, but we've had pastors. I mean, the, the cool thing to do now is to zip line in from the balcony. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that just be a life changer for you? Wouldn't that just save your soul this morning if I had to just zip, first Sunday back in the building, just zip lined onto the stage? My favorite ones where the dude gets hung about halfway up. I'm like, you deserve that. God just put the stop on it. St. Peter zip lines into the church to remind them of all the things we've seen over the last two months. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Shameful. Disgraceful. But I need to go on. Or I'll get off on a tangent. The basis of what is acceptable to God or not acceptable to God is not finally and solely the Scriptures, but the results. Do you hear that? You need to hear that. Because this is Baptist church and lots of other denominations, but we're Baptists here, so we'll mess with us. Baptist Church USA, the basis of what is acceptable to God or not acceptable to God is not finally and solely the Scripture, but it is the results. The bodies, the baptisms, the budgets. When we're pragmatists instead of biblicists, in our theology and methodology, we have no solid foundation to build upon. It constantly shifts. It constantly shifts with whatever's working, with whatever the latest bestseller says, with whatever new concoction Lifeways put together. And listen, as the culture continues to shift more and more anti-Christ, the church is following right along with it because we've got to appeal to our culture. We don't have to appeal to our culture, friend. We need to stand in the face of our culture. And get rid of this notion that America is a Christian nation. Christian nations don't legalize and celebrate gender confusion, homosexuality, abortion, and on and on, euthanasia. We can go all the way down the list. And nations can't be Christians anyway. People are. Without a solid foundation, the materials that make up a New Testament church that we're going to see next week will not stand. And Paul clearly renounced the underhanded ways of pragmatism in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we did not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We must reject the lure of pragmatism and embrace the sufficiency of Scripture as we look forward to the future together. And how do we do that, Paul? Listen to these three things. And they're three lengthy things. I know this is the first Sunday for these kids to be back in here. Let's be gracious. Hang on, kids. It's going to be okay. Number one. Renounce the disgraceful ways of the world. This is all in the app. It'll be on the screen next week. Renounce the disgraceful ways of the world. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have this ministry, 
as we received mercy, we did not lose heart. Why on earth would Paul lose heart? I mean, he's seeing his churches blow and go and grow, right? Everything's peachy with Paul always, right? He's got a personal jet, sequin suits, big mansions. I mean, that's... You know, here, here's, here's the American church has been a pathway to success, quote-unquote success, for a lot of guys, so they jump in the ministry. The, the church all around the rest of the world is a pathway to being ridiculed and the scum of the earth. And Paul was not on a pathway to success. Paul was the scum of the earth. He called himself that. But he didn't lose heart. He held on to the mercy that he had received in the beginning. And he says in verse 2, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. This phrase is sometimes translated, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Disgraceful, underhanded ways. Doesn't that sound just like pragmatism? Using disgraceful, underhanded ways in quote-unquote ministry. And what could be more disgraceful? What could be more disgraceful than saying... This works better than the Bible. What could be more disgraceful than saying, this, is, this seems to be more powerful than the gospel? What could be more disgraceful and distasteful to God than for us to say, this is more attractive and desirous than Christ? This mindset leads people to do a lot of things, but two primary things that I see. One, build churches on preferences. Build churches on preferences. Much of the church in the West has been built on preferences of people rather than principles of God's Word. When considering a church, now think about this. When considering a church, most people don't ask, is this church the most biblical church I can find in town? They don't ask that question. They ask, will this church meet my needs? Does it work for me? Do you know how many times in my ministry I've had people come to me and say, I'll tell you what, since I've, since I've been under your preaching, I've grown so much, I've matured so much, I've seen so much in God's Word, it's been so wonderful, but the music's just not moving me. So I'm going to go down to this church where they preach borderline heresy because the music moves me. Let the music move you, baby. We don't ask, is this church the most biblical church in town? We ask, will this church meet my needs? Does it work for me? And so we have the cowboy church, the biker church. We've got the contemporary church of smoke and lights and loud music. We've got the black church, the white church, the Hispanic church, the Asian church. We've got the youth church. The kids' church, the senior adult church, the young family church, the mega church. We just don't have a lot of New Testament church. Because we're not trying to build New Testament churches. We're trying to build churches built on preferences. Because when I get all the cowboys together, they can spit their stuff, talk about their country music, wear the wranglers in their boots, and nobody pushes them on nothing. Was that a pretty good impression of a cowboy? Y'all didn't know I used to ride bulls, did you? used to hop around. I still hop around, even without the boots on, from stupidity. Pretty good cowboy impression. 
have the deer hunter church. We've got the biker church. We can go right up in our leather, rev up our engines, get together with the young, young people, listen to the music we hear on the radio. Preferences, but not principles. Josh Weiss said many people go and search for the fun church, the exciting music church, the youth church, the kids club church, the Republican church, the social justice church, the business leaders church, the athletic church, when in reality we simply need a true biblical church. Preferences trump principle in our world because molding a church according to preferences works better than one based solely on Scripture. So this pragmatic mindset causes people to build churches on preferences and also build churches on productivity. We have a constant call to church growth. You go to the TBMB and all you hear is baptisms, 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 and church growth. You go to the SBC and all you hear is church growth, church growth, church growth. You go to any North American Mission Board conference and all of evangelicalism, it's grow, 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 grow. Do whatever it takes to grow the church, to get baptisms, to get numbers. I pray for growth. I pray that God would save people. I pray that we would grow spiritually, that we would grow numerically, that we would grow financially, that we would grow ministerially, that we would grow missionally. I pray that every week, all week. But we're not going to cheat to do it. We hear all of this, do whatever it takes to get these numbers. And then if we see a church with a lot of baptisms, or a church that has big numbers, we think, obviously God is pleased with whatever they're doing because His hand of blessing, quote-unquote blessing, is clearly on them. The proof is in the numbers. And then when we think that, we start asking, what are they doing? And we invite their pastors to unveil for us the secret of their success. And we find ourselves studying the fastest-growing church strategies and methods when what we should be studying is the Bible. I don't want to listen to some guru who formulated a church for some lost person in his community to hoodoo them into coming into the congregation. I want to hear what the Holy Spirit says a church should be. Lost people can't tell me what the church should be. The Holy Spirit can. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That means the Scripture is sufficient for the man of God. Mark Dever said, as long as quick numerical growth remains the primary indicator of church health, the truth will be compromised. Instead, churches must once again begin measuring success, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of fidelity to the Scriptures. We need to be sure that we renounce the disgraceful ways of the world and build the church not on preferences or productivity, but on the Lord Jesus we need to renounce the disgraceful ways of the world number two refuse craftiness and compromise verse two paul says we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of god but by manifestation of the truth craftiness craftiness can also be translated cleverness or trickery you know, pastors like to do that bait-and-switch thing where they tell you they're going to give away a free iPhone 12 and feed everybody and have a big party and they get you in there and they try to sneak the gospel in on you. 
cleverness, trickery. Carries with the idea, carries with the idea of being cunning. It sounds good. Why be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? Except that word is also used in 2 Corinthians 11 to describe how the serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness, trickery, or cleverness. And I don't think it needs to take a seminary degree to realize we don't need to be mimicking the serpent. Paul said, I'm, I'm doing away with craftiness, and I'm refusing to adulterate the Word of God, but I'm going to manifest the truth. So we can either adulterate the Word, or we can manifest the truth. Those are our options, and both of them have to do with Scripture. We can either twist and adulterate Scripture and craftiness to try to please people who don't even love Jesus to begin with, or we can manifest the truth from Scripture. Is Scripture the goal or is success the goal? We need to answer that question this morning. You need to answer your, that, that question for yourself this morning. Is Scripture the goal? Or is success the goal? Success cannot be our guide if Scripture is sufficient. And vice versa. Scripture cannot be our guide if success is sufficient. At best... Scripture will be a byproduct. We must refuse craftiness and the temptation to compromise God's word for success. Let me give you three warnings about craftiness. Number one, craftiness offers God something he has not asked for. Craftiness offers God something he has not asked for. You see, if we come in here and we give God something in worship he hasn't asked us for, it isn't pleasing worship no matter how amazing it is to us. If we come in here and say, okay, God, we got this great idea, and we're going to give you something that you've never asked us for, that's not pleasing to God. In Leviticus chapter 10, leading up to Leviticus, God has given all kinds of specifics on how to worship Him, how to sacrifice, how to offer and burn incense, etc., etc. Even the mixtures, even the ingredients, He's done it all. Leviticus 10 comes on the scene right here in the very beginning of the priestly order. And in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 10, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. I can just see them in there mixing up the recipe and say, hmm, what, that smells good. Nadab, take a whiff of that. Ooh, Abihu, you're on to something. That smells, that smells better. That even smells better than what God gave Let's just put that on. He's going to love it. There's no way. I mean, unless he's got COVID and he can't smell, he's going to love this. And they offer strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them on the spot. And they died before the Lord. Why? Because they offered God something he had not asked for. How much false fire do we offer God in our churches? When we offer God something he has not asked for, it is offensive instead of pleasing. Let me give you an example. Imagine your son. Just imagine that you have a son. Imagine this son worked in the World Trade Center towers prior to September 11th. And on September 11th, your only son, who you love with all of your heart, goes into those towers And they're attacked on September 11th, like we all know they were. They come crashing down, and your son dies. His body's never recovered. You're in mourning. But you receive an invitation from his 
boss, his employer, the one that owned the business that he worked for all these years, and he wants to honor you because your son gave his life working for his business. So the party's put together. There's a crowd there, and you're there to be honored by this employer because your son died, and, and, and he hands you a gift. And you look at this gift, and this gift is wrapped in the most unique paper. The paper is actually solid bronze. And the bow on that present is actually pure silver. You, you know this is something, right? So you, you get through the bronze paper and you pull that silver bow off and set it to the side, already well impressed with the, with the wealth of this gift. And you, you take that paper off slowly and you see that it's a frame face down. And this frame, the frame is made of pure gold. And it has diamonds in the, real diamonds in the corner. You are amazed at this gift. And you flip the picture over. You flip the frame over. And there in the solid gold frame with the diamond studs on the corners is a portrait, a group portrait of the hijackers that flew their plane into your son's building, smiling and posing and laughing in the picture. How does that make you feel? you feel honored? Do you feel happy? Do you feel appreciated? You feel mocked, do you not? You feel like you've been made a fool of. You feel like you've been treated unfairly. Forget the gold frame. Forget the diamond studs. Forget the bronze paper and the silver bow. This is, a, this is an offense to celebrate the ones who took the life of your son. And we come into church, and we, we fancy up the world with gold, and we fancy up the world with silver, and we fancy up the world with diamond studs, and we flip a picture of the world around to God and say, aren't you honored? And he says, that's a picture of those who took the life of my son. Pretty it up all you want. Write you a book. But I'm not honored. I'm offended. Craftiness offers God something He has not asked for, and we cannot do that, people. Craftiness thinks that what works pleases God. Craftiness thinks that what brings in the quote-unquote harvest pleases God. You know, we hear it all the time. Well, you know, I tell you what, He can say whatever He wants to say, but who's bringing people to Jesus? It raises the age-old question, are we bringing them to Jesus? Or are we bringing them to your church, quote-unquote church? There's a difference. When we can bring people to the church, we can have a big old hootenanny and bring people to the church. Big party every Sunday and bring people to the church, but that doesn't mean we're bringing them to Jesus. Craftiness thinks that what works pleases God. Now, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're getting close, kids. Er, closer, kids. Hang on. You're doing great. Mr. Michael's going to give you a prize. He doesn't know it, but he's going <laughs> to. So 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6. Okay, but in 1 Samuel 6, while you're turning to 2 Samuel 6, look at, look at what happens. Okay, go to 2 Samuel 6. But back in 1 Samuel, the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, where His presence rested. We got 
Clear rules on this ark. This is the presence of God. You don't touch this thing. You carry it on poles. The priests carry it on poles. They don't touch the presence of God. And the Philistines take this thing back with them, and it starts wrecking all kinds of havoc. So they're like, we don't want this thing anymore. We've had enough trouble out of the ark. What do we do with it? So they find some oxen and a cart, and they put the ark on the cart, and they pop those oxen, and they just take it right on back to King David. And like, Good, it's out of our hands. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David has to move the ark. And how does King David move the ark? Does he go to Scripture and say, the Bible says the way to move the ark is with the priest inserting poles into the rings on the ark and carrying the ark and not touching the ark? Or does King David do what we do and say, hey, the Philistines moved it pretty, pretty good with those oxen in that cart. Somebody bring an oxen and cart. Worked. God seemed to appreciate it and approve of it. He brought it right back to us. Surely he'll approve of it again, right? So they put the ark on the cart. 2 Samuel chapter 6, and look what happens. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, and Hio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon... Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And I should have went one verse further. David was angry. David got angry over this. God, this worked for the Philistines. You didn't strike any of them dead. It turned out good for them. And, and here we are trying to bring the ark to your house, to, to your city. And you're going to strike one of my men dead. Craftiness thinks that because it works, it must be okay with God. So in our churches, what we do is we look at the world. We look at the world. And we say, here's what the world likes, here's what the world wants, here's what the world appreciates, here's what appeals to the world. How close can we get to that without crossing the line? So we draw a line and we say, okay, we can't go any further than this or we're going to cross the line. So we get as close to that line as possible. And we want to do that because we want to get as close to that line as possible so we can reach out across and take the hands of the world and bring them across the line into the kingdom of God. And that all sounds good and fine, doesn't it? Until you start asking yourself, why is it that someone who is in love with Jesus would want to be that close to the line? And, and why would someone who is in love with Jesus... Be comfortable hanging out that close to the line. We like, yeah, you know, this feels good. This, this appeals to my old nature. So I want to hang out here. What does that say about us? And what is this going to say about us when we realize that we drew the line right here? But God drew it way back here. And we crossed it a long time ago. And we don't even realize it. 
Craftiness thinks that what works pleases God. Third, craftiness thinks that pure motives alone please God. We need pure motives. We do. But craftiness thinks that pure motives alone please God. Now think about David. Here's David, a man after God's own heart. Do you think he had a malicious bone in his body? Let's just show God. We don't have to, we don't have to obey his word when it comes to the ark. We'll show God. We can haul it in with oxen in a cart if we want to. Is that what David did? Absolutely. We know better than that. He wasn't trying to offend God. He had good motives. He's wanting to bring it back, right? And think about poor Uzzah. Uzzah's walking along and the oxen stumble and ups, almost upset the cart and flip the ark of God where the presence of God rests off into the dirt. What better motive can a man have than to say, Dude, we don't want this thing to fall into the dirt, right? He did fail to realize that the dirt had never sinned. And the dirt was much cleaner than his filthy hands. But the motives were pure. The motives were good. But the pure motives alone do not please God. And sometimes we'll say, hey, I really love, I really love, I saw this church on TV do this thing, and I mean, it, it was really awesome. It really moved me. It really touched me. We should add it to our worship, Tom. We should just add it in because it was really good. Let's do this at our church. Just because my motives are pure and my heart is moved doesn't mean God is pleased. I heard Bodie Balkum tell a story one time about him trying to buy a gift for his wife. He said, I can go about this one of two ways. He says, I can study Bridget, which Mandy will tell you I'm horrible at, by the way. I just, like, I'm oblivious. I just, pitiful. Y'all pray for her. But he said, I can study Bridget. I can listen for little comments, little hints. I can, I can go look for counsel from her friends, and I can try to find out what it is that moves Bridget, what Bridget loves, what Bridget likes, and I can try to figure that out and give her that gift. Or I can do this. I can say, I really like watches. I do. I like watches, different types of watches, different styles of watches. I think I'll get Bridget a watch. Now, which way do you think is going to work out? Is it going to work out better for him to study Bridget? To go do some research and find out what it is that Bridget likes? To listen to Bridget and see what kind of hints she's dropping? What kind of direction she's giving? Or is it going to work out better for him to say, Here, honey, here's a watch. I really love watches, and this one really looked good on my arm. And yet that's exactly what we do. When we come in here, we say, Well, this moves me. This touches me. Me, 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 me. And it's not about me. It's about him. And we give God a watch because we like the watch. Rather than listening, what do you want, God? Rather than researching, what does your word tell us, God? What do your apostles say to us, God? If we're going to build on the solid foundation of the sufficiency of Scripture, we've got to fight pragmatism. We've got to renounce the disgraceful ways of the world and build on the church of Jesus Christ. We have to refuse craftiness and the temptation to compromise God's word for quote-unquote success. And thirdly and finally, we need to rely on the power of God alone. Listen, I do not, I don't want to be the pastor who gets put in a paper somewhere 
because we threw enough parties and manipulated enough people to dunk enough of their kids who didn't have a clue about the gospel, but we got the baptisms down, tricked enough of them into joining the church that we look like we're a success. I don't want to be that guy. You know who I want to be? I want to be the guy that is so weak and so slow and so untalented and ungifted that God does something here so that when it's done, people step back and say, only God. Only God could have done that. That's what I want. And that's what we should want. We should want the power of God to be evident and not mask it or hide it or, or cause there to be questioned. Like, was it, the, was it the strategy or was it God? Paul says, manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus Christ's sake. We could overcome pragmatism if we just realize that what saves people is not our cutting-edge ideas. It's not our relevance. It's not our pragmatic methodology. But it is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed day in and day out and exemplified by the people who make up the body of Christ. And if the gospel is not sufficient, it's not because we need new methods, but because the God of this world has blinded people's eyes and this battle is in the heavenly realm, not the marketing realm. Pragmatism is deceptive and is sneaky and is tempting. All it takes is for news of a church down the road to have a massive baptism, and we haven't baptized anybody in a while, and we start thinking, maybe we should consider getting a more entertaining preacher. All it takes is, is one business meeting where 15 people move their membership to another church, and we haven't seen any new members, and people start saying, I wonder if we should really reconsider our worship style. All it takes is a financial crunch, a challenging time when others seem to be doing better, and we start asking, what are we doing wrong? Maybe, maybe I should just go join up with where it's happening Pragmatism deceives us by subtly sucking us away from the foundation of Scripture and into what works every time we hear of another church experiencing more productivity than our church. And the reality is, and I want to be careful here, but I'm going to say it. The reality is, if a church is drawing in droves of unbelievers, hear me, we should be reaching unbelievers, but if a church is drawing in droves of unbelievers, we should probably be cautious. How can we attract God by doing what is so attractive to His enemies? Romans 5.10 calls us enemies of God before Christ. So how am I going to attract the holy God of the universe if what I'm doing is attracting all of His enemies... And they're loving it. And how can we attract so many, so many enemies of God if what we're doing is attracting God? You know, lost people ought to be uncomfortable when they're in the presence of a holy God. It just doesn't make sense. The same entree that appeals to buzzards usually doesn't appeal to humans. And the same entree that appeals to God 
doesn't generally appeal to lost people. It's just the way it is. We don't have the right to manufacture our own recipe in an effort to please them both at the same time. The New Testament religion is not a come and see religion. It's a go and tell. So when we start trying to manipulate the church so we can say, come and see this big party we have and the fun we have, it'll really appeal to you, your lostness. We're not a New Testament church. A New Testament church is not come and see. A New Testament church is go and tell. Every time, go and tell, go and tell, go and tell. Josh Bice again said, Faithful preaching will be boring to unbelievers. Faithful singing will be unimpressive to unbelievers. Faithful praying will be pointless to unbelievers. Faithful giving will be illogical to unbelievers. Faithful worship will not entertain unbelievers. We need faithful churches. And guess what happens? Faithful churches impact lostness. Not by blending in with the world, but by standing out. So I want to lay the foundation this morning so that we can erect the structure next week of a New Testament church. And the foundation is the sufficiency of Scripture for our theology and our methodology, for what we believe and what we do, for everything we believe and everything we do. Let me rephrase that. Not what we believe and what we do, but everything we believe and everything we do. And if we're going to have the sufficiency of Scripture to dictate everything we believe and everything we do, we've got to renounce pragmatism and renounce the disgraceful ways of the world, renounce and refuse the craftiness of the world and the compromise of scriptures, and we have to rely on the power of God alone. That is the foundation, and hear me. If that is unappealing to you this morning, if that is unappealing to you this morning, I just don't like the sound of that. I want to encourage you to consider whose side you're on. Are you with the world? Or with you, are you with Christ? Whose Spirit has given us His Word to dictate for us what we believe and what we do. And if that's unappealing to you, I want you to consider in these next moments as we take this cup, you should have picked one up on the way in. I hope you did. If you did, take that out. If you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized into His family, you've been born again and revolutionized by the power of His gospel, take one of these out. If not, you watch. You look at those around you who have and consider the news that can take you, an enemy of Christ, and make you as friend and not just his friend but his fellow heir children of God because it is in this bread and it is in this cup that we are reminded of the gospel message that changes us and changes our desires and changes our hearts and changes our affections in that very top little plastic piece there's a wafer As we take that out and as we look at that, I want us to think about the life of Jesus Christ. See, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus Christ came to this earth in the flesh, born in a manger in Bethlehem to a virgin named Mary. And he did that so that he could enter humanity as one of us and live the life of sinless perfection that God the Father requires and demands of every one of us. Anybody here perfect? No, you're not. And no, I'm not. We're all very, very, very imperfect. Even today, we're very imperfect. And our only hope of having a perfect account before God is Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life in our place. He lived the perfect life in our place so that God could take His perfect record of righteousness and He could put it on our account. And when He pulls up our account on Judgment Day, He doesn't see us, but He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That bread represents that life in the flesh that Jesus lived for us. Have you received that life? Have you been granted that righteousness? If not, this morning we want to appeal to you to repent of your sin and your rebellion against God and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Call upon His name and He will save you. Let's pray and thank Him for this life He lived. Father, we thank You for this bread that points us to the life You lived on in our place on our behalf. We thank you that you are our righteousness. That it's not what we've done, but it's what you've done. It's not who we are, but it's who you are. We have no hope in and of ourselves, but we cling to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived the life you require of us in our place. We thank you for that. We thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll peel that other layer back. You'll see the fruit of the vine, which reminds us of not only the life Jesus lived for us, but the blood Jesus shed for us. In 1 John 1, 7 through 9, we read, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, Jesus not only lived the life that God required of us and demanded of us, but he went to the cross and he died the death that our sin demanded of us. You see, we're all going to pay for our, we're all going to have our sins paid for. We're all going to have our sins paid in full. They will either be paid for by us in eternity in a place called hell forever and ever and ever. Or they will be paid for by Jesus Christ on a cross. Those are our only two options. Jesus came to this earth to go to a cross to take upon himself my sin, your sin, our iniquity, our transgression. And there on the cross, God the Father judged our sin in Jesus on the cross until He could say, it is finished, it has been paid in full, and He was buried in a barred tomb. But on Sunday morning, He rose from the grave bodily and victorious so that we in this place could turn away from our sin and put our trust in Him and be saved and be born again and be transformed by His power and His grace. His blood can not only cover, but cleanse. Have you been cleansed by that blood? 
this morning. Father, we thank you for Jesus' precious blood, which cleanses us from all of our sin. We thank you that he not only lived the perfect life, but he died the death in our place that our sin deserves so that we could live and so that we could have peace with you. God, if there's a person here who has not had their sins washed away, I pray that they would look to Christ even now, that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ and plead with Him and cling to Him until they have assurance. Thank you for your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing about Jesus. And after we sing, I'm going to come up and do just a few housekeeping things and you'll be dismissed. Let's stand together and let's sing about this Jesus who transforms us and gives us his desires and his affections so that we long to line our lives up and our beliefs up with his scripture. Let's let Christ be our foundation here this morning as we sing.